Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and you did it. You made it to another weekend. I'm not sure what weekends really are anymore, but I still think we should celebrate. And to do that, we are going to take a look back at the week that was. Not in like a caps lock, newsy news way, but in a fun, chill, lowercase pop culture way. We're going to talk with our favorite movie expert about an absolutely wild week in the film industry, one in which you're not going to guess this. Hocus Pocus was one of the highest performing box office earners. (laughs) Plus, a conversation with an expert on one of my favorite holidays. Hey, great to speak with you. I love uh, talking about fat bears. But first, we're going to talk about some of my other favorite stories with two of my favorite people. Joining me today is WBEZ education reporter Susie Ahn. Hey, Susie. Hey, Greta. And we also have Vocalo Morning host Jill Hopkins. Hi, Jill. Hey, Greta. Hey, Susie. Hey. Um, So I noticed that none of us got MacArthur Genius Grants this year. What the hell? I wasn't even trying. You know, it's fine. I wasn't even trying. That's a really good way of thinking of it. So this week's political news has been like completely insane. And I know that's a thing that we can say most weeks these days. But like for real, this week was bananas. We saw a COVID outbreak in the White House. There was the vice presidential debate. There's all this uncertainty around a new stimulus package. And amongst all of that, maybe one of the most watched political insiders right now is a teenage girl with a massive social media following who's super annoyed with her parents. I'm talking about Claudia Conway. Her mom is former White House advisor Kellyanne Conway. And then her dad, George, is also Republican, but he's a huge critic of the president. He's actually actively working to get him out of office. Add to that the fact that Claudia has 1.3 million followers on TikTok, and we have a really interesting story. Claudia is actually the person who broke the news last week that her mom had COVID. Um, Jill, what do you know about this story? Are you a TikTok person? I am not a TikTok person, but I am a Claudia Conway stan, for sure. Like, you know, TikToks, they they filter through the other, like, middle-aged people's social media. (laughs) But I, 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 I found out about her because she was trying to get emancipated from her parents. Is that still happening? Yeah. So that was the whole deal in August. Essentially, like she said, she wanted to emancipate herself from her parents. She says they're verbally and physically abusive. And that's why they both quit their jobs to like fix what was happening at home, essentially. So, yeah, I don't know where they where she is in that process. I imagine it's a drawn out process, though, to emancipate yourself. Yeah. And I also imagine that this week uh, her attorneys are just like chomping at the bit. Like, (laughs) ah, finally, the smoking gun we needed. They gave you COVID. But like, I I feel bad for whenever I hear about teenagers who who want to emancipate themselves. 
I like that's the first place like how bad does it have to be that you are willing to give up free room and board and like go be an adult because being an adult fucking sucks <laughs> that, is, that is a very good point I mean I do think that's partly what's so fascinating about this story right is that it's like it's when you think of it as just like a salacious soapy thing of like the teenage daughter of two people who are both conservative politicians, but like also disagree very intensely about what needs to happen with this country. And then you add TikTok to it. It's just sort of like, you know, I mean, it's it you like you could make a reality TV show out of this and people would absolutely watch it. But there are also the issues of just like this poor girl, right? Like how miserable must she be? And like, you know, to allege abuse, too. It's like, how horrible is it to be in that household? That sounds awful. Here's the other thing about it. It's like she has said uh, she admires both of her parents in different ways, maybe not politically. Um, she talks about how her her mom is her best friend. Of course, they disagree with things. And, you know, like in one of the latest videos where she is um, kind of forced to issue a correction <laughs> and yes. and... Her mom is there in the room not realizing she's being recorded at the time. Mm -hmm. Like if you, if you, you know, if you mute it and like look at it, they're like just hanging out on a bed together. You know, you can kind of tell like there's like a comfort level to it where, you know, if you, if you are someone who uh, has grown up disagreeing with your parents, but you still have this comfort level, like that's such a real yeah. thing, you know? Yeah, that's really true. Well, and you can also make the argument that there's like a moral imperative that if this 15 year old is breaking news, then like it's our duty to to stay engaged with what she's saying. I mean, she's there doesn't seem to be that like Kardashian hunger coming from her. There's not like that Instagram thirst that I'm getting off of her. I, she's just this is her writing in her journal like any of us would have done in analog times. <laughs> yeah. Except now we are all here for, you know. And on the same like Instagram page on the same TikTok, she's, you know, she's talking about other 15 year old girl things. And I don't give a fuck about any of that stuff. <laughs> it has nothing to do with me. But when she's, you know, talking about what turns out to be matters of national security, my ears perk up. I, I often say you should be frightened of teenage girls especially in packs of three or more yeah we don't give them enough credit we really don't sure Susie, as a mom do you watch those videos and think like oh god i'm never gonna give my children cell phones i mean i know they're much younger than claudia is now but i just wonder if that changes how you're how you're seeing the whole thing unfold i mean yeah i <laughs> i think about i think about myself as a teenager and like i mean i i just remember as a kid like my parents saying something about like a girl in my ice skating class and then me then going up to the girl in my ice skating class and said, well, my parents said this about you. <laughs> no chill. <laughs> and like, wow. you know, it was sort of like a, you know, a bit of a, like a revengey thing, sort of like mom and dad, you should know better than to say things like this behind people's backs. Uh -huh. um, and, and then now, now as a parent, I'm like, Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> you know, like I don't, <laughs> Yeah. So Jill, how glad are you that social media didn't exist when you were 15? I think I probably broached this on every episode of this podcast. <laughs> I'll find a way. I'll find a way to talk about how glad I am that YouTube didn't exist when I was a kid. And that, you know, the TikToks thing. I mean, it, it's not like we didn't do 
dumb stuff. It's not like we didn't have little dance offs and dance routines and like we didn't, you know, resent our parents or, or any of that. So there's nothing new under the sun on, on that front. But I am certainly glad that my deep thoughts stayed in my trapper keeper. <laughs> right. And yeah, it just it just seems like you know how to make being a teenager even worse. Like the internet but I don't know I'm sure there's upsides too and maybe I just sound like a very crabby old lady when I say that well when you don't do it when you don't partake in that stuff I wonder are you like a pariah to your social circle like oh you don't have an Instagram you don't have TikTok what are you some kind of freak like how you're damned if you do and damned if you don't I imagine yeah for real so another big story that's a little more local to Chicago but I think has potential national implications is that Second City is up for sale um, it's been a tough year for them in a number of ways. They have been dealing with allegations of racism. The CEO has resigned. And obviously they can't do live shows because of the coronavirus. Um, Second City is like an improv institution. It's often thought of as a big feeder to SNL. And, you know, it's just where a bunch of super famous comedians got their start, including people like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, Stephen Colbert, Dan Aykroyd, the Belushis, just like a whole bunch of people. Susie, I know you are not a comedy reporter, but you have dabbled in some stand up. Um, I wonder, like, do you have any sense of how crushing this is for the industry or is this just just like a wait and see kind of situation. It's a wait and see depending on who who picks who picks it up, you know, who yeah. who's going to be the the buyer. I mean, I I have taken uh sketch writing classes at Second City. They've got like a huge education program. Um some people will say a little too many levels to get through the graduating process and how much money you have to pay for each class. Sure. Even when I took classes there, you'd walk in it's a lot of younger white people who are taking classes. Um, for the people who made it into the showcase, there wasn't a ton of diversity. And I've heard from folks that that who played uh, the diverse part in the showcase mm -hmm. feeling at times alienated or that um, their voice wasn't being heard when they brought up concerns. And, you know, whoever takes it on, that is something that they're definitely going to need to address. Um, in terms of you know, what kind of presence Second City holds. I think that's going to continue no matter who ends up with it, just as an institution, just because Chicago is an improv town, a comedy town. But that's what I'm waiting to see, how they um, how they move it forward. Yeah, I mean, just the way you describe, like, the person with the diverse role in the showcase is like, okay, this is a problem. Like, if that's how we're yeah. looking at things, this is this is not good. Jill, what's your take on Second City? The, the thing I really wanted to say about uh, Second City closing and and I.O. closing in the same uh, space. Improv Olympics, yeah. Is that hopefully there will be other paths to success that will get noticed by the powers that be. Hopefully Lauren Michaels and whomever else will be able to say, oh, well, those two huge things don't exist anymore. What smaller run organizations that aren't mostly 26 year old white dudes can I draw from and get some talent here uh you know maybe some Asian people maybe uh some more women oh uh, yeah I'm, I'm here yeah go ahead hello there's Suzanne <laughs> hire me <laughs> yeah that's a really good point because it seems like that's hire us a lot of it with the, the whole thing right is like we have to decentralize all of these systems that that facilitate certain kinds of people succeeding and other kinds of people not succeeding right yeah, I think uh, not a lot of people who can afford, you know, upwards of $300 a class, part one of eight, that can can do this sort of thing. And 
I think we are missing out on some of the best comedic voices because those people have night jobs or are broke. Broke people are the funniest people in the world. <laughs> that is a very good point, Jill. <laughs> so, Jill, I want to offer my condolences on the death of Eddie Van Halen this week. Thank you. Um, You're like a big fan, right? Huge Van Halen fan. I've been my whole life. Uh, this is a uh, first of all, fuck cancer. Fuck it. Uh, 65 is not old enough. Also, uh, don't smoke, kids. Quit. Quit it. Don't do that. Uh, but third of all, I mean, I think Eddie is what the 80s sound like to me. Somebody tweeted yesterday that they, they were trying to put uh, their finger on why, despite not being a, you know, a heavy metal person or a hard rock person, why they always thought Van Halen just was a cut above the rest of his head because Van Halen music sounds like a dog wearing sunglasses. <laughs> Perfect. When my friend turned 40 a few years ago, we rented, a bunch of us rented this lake house in uh, Michigan outside of Kalamazoo. And we didn't know when we rented the place that the boat that was parked outside was also part of the rental. So we got really excited about getting on this boat and immediately like we're gathering like the Bluetooth speaker and we're, you know, figuring out whose life jacket is whose. And they're like, Jill, you have to pick the music for the boat. And I said, no problem. Van Halen one play. And we just listened to Van Halen on a boat with a handle of whiskey and a dog. And it was great. It was the best day. And it was, nobody questioned my choice. It was just what needed to be done. Susie on Jill Hopkins, thank you so much for doing this. It was really fun. Thank you. Thanks. As you are well aware, summer movie season was kind of a bust this year. So many movies got pushed back to the fall. And to further complicate the mess, on Thursday, the company that owns Regal, the massive chain of movieplexes that you are certainly familiar with, closed all of its theaters in the United States. What does that mean for the industry? What movies can we still expect this year? And can I please just watch them from my couch? To help us answer all of that is the delightful Eliana Docterman. She writes about movies and pop culture and feminism for time. And her most recent article about Regal has the headline, Blockbuster Season is Over Before It Even Began. Eliana, hey. Hi, how are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I seems like you've been busy, huh? A lot of things happened very quickly. So, yeah, first of all, Regal has announced this week they're closing all of their 536 movie theaters here in the United States with no reopen date. How big of a deal is that? It's a pretty big deal. It's actually a British chain that owns a bunch of American theaters as well as theaters in the UK. And so they have sort of squarely laid the blame on the fact that no Time to Die, the latest James Bond film, pushed its release from this winter to next year. And that was one of the last big movies that was really supposed to premiere this year. And now they just don't have 
any movies to show. So uh. there's just no way that um, theaters can stay open. And if one of the biggest chains is closing all of its theaters temporarily, I mean, best of luck to the mom and pop theaters. Yeah, no kidding. So there are still some theaters that are open, but it's just like a much scrappier, less consistent group is essentially what you're saying. Yeah. And also what they're showing is somewhat random. Uh, As an example, (laughs) this past weekend, Hocus Pocus was one of the highest performing box office earners, (laughs) which if you're unfamiliar, is a film about witches starring Bette Midler that debuted- What, 92? (laughs) 27 years ago. Yes. So we're truly in a situation where people are not seeing movies and what movie theaters are able to show are movies that premiered in the 90s. Okay. So yeah, before this week, there were three like big releases still scheduled for 2020. You just mentioned No Time to Die, the Bond movie. What about Wonder Woman 1984 and Dune? What's going to happen with those? So Dune also has moved to 2021. Wonder Woman 1984, as of right now, and I suspect this will change pretty quickly, is holding out and is supposed to be released at Christmas time in December. But Warner Brothers uh, has already moved several of its other movies, including Dune, to 2021. So I don't suspect that Wonder Woman 1984 will stay in that 2020 slot. So we talked about this a little bit last time around. Like a lot of movies have gone straight to VOD video on demand. Uh, including Mulan, which I feel like was one of those that was very highly anticipated initially. How did that end up going? Like, how how is it working for studios to do that? Are they making the money they need to be? Uh, they are not. So you mentioned uh, both Tenet and Mulan, and mm-hmm. I feel like those were the two major test balloons uh, for the industry to see whether they could release movies in theaters on a, in a mass scale with Tenet or release movies uh, to VOD with the big scale sort of movie like Mulan. Um, And the numbers on both of those movies are pretty disappointing. Um, I mean, as a major signal that Mulan did not work, for example, Disney, after the release of Mulan, pushed its entire slate back (laughs) um, almost a year for everything, which means that movies like Black Widow, Eternals, West Side Story all of which were supposed to come out this year, are all moving to next year. So that seems to suggest that uh, the Mulan strategy didn't necessarily work. There are a few movies they still have on their slate, like the Pixar movie Soul, that I could see maybe going to VOD. But those really big sort of Marvel movies, anything franchisee, I I have a hard time seeing it being released in the United States, at least, uh, this calendar year. With that in mind, there are still a few big movies that we can expect this year that are just going straight to video on demand. Um, Can you tell us about a few that you're excited about? Yeah. So one of the movies that I am very excited about that actually is imminently being released on Netflix is Trial of the Chicago 7. Oh, yeah. It's the new Aaron Sorkin movie. Um, It covers the trial of eight and then later seven activist leaders who were arrested during the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really captures a lot of the turmoil of this moment. 
We have to make a decision right now, a decision I just assumed we'd already made four months ago when trial prep began. Are we using this trial to defend ourselves against very serious charges that could land us in prison for 10 years? Or are we using it to say a pointless fuck you to the establishment? Fuck you. That is what I was afraid. Wait, I don't know if you were saying fuck you or answer. I was also confused. It has an insane cast. I'm sure many of them will be nominated for Oscars, including Sasha Baron Cohen, who hasn't really been in anything in a while, but has this in Borat 2 coming out this month. So that should be interesting. (laughs) Um, And Eddie Redmayne and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. So it should be, at the very least, uh, I would recommend it as an entertaining watch and particularly one that feels extremely relevant in our moment of civil unrest. And that is guaranteed to be on Netflix on October 16th, right? That is correct. Nice. So another one you mentioned that I think sounds really interesting is On the Rocks. What can you tell us about it? Yeah. So On the Rocks is Sofia Coppola's latest movie. Um, Bill Murray is in it. And obviously he's worked with Sofia Coppola before Mm -hmm. on Lost in Translation, but it's been 17 years. So people are excited about that. And he plays the father of um, an artist who's played by Rashida Jones, who is, I feel like you don't have to say anything else. Like, yeah, I'm I know. It, those two people um, have great chemistry. And uh, yeah, you know, it is very much a, a Sofia Coppola movie. It is about a woman struggling with creativity and family. We're watching Breaking Bad. What? It's really good. It's a great show. Have you seen it? Yes, I have seen it. It's great. It's not for kids. What? Was there something bad on? No. Yeah. Hey, look, I can shuffle. Oh, wow, that's great. (laughs) We learned that all young girls should know how to shuffle and how to... Love. Love. (laughs) So I feel like I don't have to sell you much more than that if you are a fan of hers to begin with. Uh, And that one is already out in theaters, and it's coming to Apple TV on October 23rd. Awesome. So one thing I feel like I don't know much about, but people who know about it seem extremely enthusiastic is American Utopia. Yeah. So American Utopia, which is going to be on HBO October 17th, um, is a Spike Lee directed version of an acclaimed Broadway show from David Byrne. Like what? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Who, if people don't know, is the former frontman of the Talking Heads. Yeah. Um, It's sort of just like a musical experience, just this really joyful, cathartic musical experience. What if we could eliminate everything from the stage except the stuff we care about the most? Without cables or wires, what would be left? Well, it would be us and you. And that's what the show is. It was this big hit on Broadway people just raved about it. And so Spike Lee has now directed the film version. It really does feel like this is the year for filmed versions of hit Broadway uh, productions. And you've seen it? I have. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's joyful. If you need an uplifting sort of optimistic vision of America, I would recommend it. Which, yeah, seems like we could all use that right about now, huh? It does seem like that. Eliana, thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. One more thing about bears with mass, volume, and surface area in just a minute. 
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So we're now less than a month away from what is sure to be, let's just call it a tumultuous election, let alone the fact that we are soon to enter winter during a global pandemic, which sounds frankly really terrible. If you could sleep for the next six months, would you? I know I sure would. That, in fact, is what a lot of bears in my home state of Alaska are about to do. They have been scarfing down salmon all summer. And whether they realized it or not, they are also the internet famous stars of Fat Bear Week. Yes, I did just say Fat Bear Week. What is Fat Bear Week, you ask? Well, Mother Jones actually calls it America's most body positive contest. Here's how it works. There are before and after pics of a selection of bears in Katmai National Park. And unlike photos at the gym with the before and after, in this case, the bears are gaining weight. They're trying to fatten up before winter hits when there is no food and they need to just like hunker down and hibernate. For Fat Bear Week, people get to vote online over whose before and after pics show the fattest bear. Here to tell us more about it is Mike Fitz. Hey, great to speak with you. I love uh, talking about fat bears. Mike was a park ranger at Katmai National Park in Alaska for several years, and now he's the resident naturalist with Explore.org, which is the website that pits fat bears against each other so the voting public can choose a champion. This year's finalists were two massive brown bears named 747 and Chunk. Chunk probably weighs in somewhere around 1,200 pounds or so. I mean, so he's a big guy, but 747 is even bigger. Really? Yeah. Last year, 747 was estimated to weigh about 1,400 pounds. So do you want to tell us who ended up winning? Well, 747, who I have actually been uh, rooting for for the past several years. Oh, really? Yeah, finally pulled it out this year. (laughs) It only took me several years of lobbying to get that done. But finally, this year, the public listened, (laughs) so to speak. So what do you think it was about 747 that that people responded to or that you find so interesting, aside from just being very fat? (laughs) Yeah, he's, I mean, he is a very successful bear. I mean, when I first saw 747 at Brooks River uh, in 2007, he was kind of a young, goofy adult. Hmm. There really wasn't any indication in his behavior that I could see, at least, that would suggest he would grow into the giant that he is today. So it's been fun for me to watch him really grow into this fully mature animal. Uh, and, And he's really in the prime of his life right now. More than 640,000 people chimed in with their fat bear opinions this year, which is more than ever before. Mike says that's partly because fat bears are symbols of success, but also that it's just nice to celebrate them. For an online thing, Fat Bear Week offers quite a stark contrast to like the doom scrolling that used that we often do when we're on Twitter or something like that. I mean, it, when you look at the Fat Bear Week comments uh, on fatbearweek.org, they're overwhelmingly positive. It's very different than what you normally find in a comment section. Pick any website, especially if it has anything even remotely to do with politics. Mm-hmm. 
it's it's often you know devolves into negativity and hostility quite quickly. But but Fat Bear Week was the the complete opposite. Mike says Fat Bear Week is a great distraction, but he says we could also learn a lot from them. When I look at a fat bear, I see an animal that's uh, persistent. I see an animal that's successful. I see uh, a strong work ethic. You know, uh, bears, their currency is calories. So when we see fat bears, uh, it signifies success. It also signifies that there's an ecosystem there that has the ability to support them. There are probably more brown bears living within the boundaries of Katmai National Park than all of the grizzlies currently residing in the lower 48 states. So that tells you a little bit about how rich the ecosystem is overall. And when we see a fat bear, we're also seeing a a symbol of a healthy and productive ecosystem. Salmon and blueberries, man. Salmon and blueberries. Mike Fitz has a book all about bears of Alaska coming out in March, which means 747 will be able to read it when he wakes up from his hibernation. And in the meantime, if you need more fat bear content, at least before it starts to snow, which is any minute in Alaska, you can Google brown bear cam for a live stream of these bears out fishing. All right, that's it for today's show. You may have noticed the format today was a little different. We would love to hear what you think of it, especially if you liked it. Just send us an email, nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. The show is produced by me and Justin Bull. Our intern is Isabel Carter. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you on Tuesday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.